Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Line the Land Ministries, and thank you for joining us once again for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai In all the ways that you might be watching, we issue a hearty Shabbat Shalom to all of you on Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any one of our television apps. We thank you for making us a part of your Sabbath routine. Right now, it is September 25th, and we are in the 10 days of awe between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur. I pray that you are having a uh, time of uh, repentance as we are putting our focus on the Lord, as we prepare for Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. And we're also feverishly making preparations for the Feast of Tabernacles in Chandler, Oklahoma as well. I pray everyone has a wonderful uh, fall feast. And so wherever you might be celebrating Sukkot, I pray that the Lord will pour out His Spirit upon you and bless you uh, wherever you might be camping, whether that's in your own backyard or uh, joining us in any one of the number of uh, Sukkot's here in Oklahoma or wherever you might be around the world. Um, as always, if you are blessed by Lion and Lamb Ministries, anything that we do here as we are committed to uh, serving the Lord, His kingdom, and uh, ministering to the brethren, if you're blessed by anything that we do, please consider making a donation. You can go to llgive.com and make your donation there. If the Lord would stir in your heart, you can sign up as one of our monthly donors or give a one-time gift, whatever it might be. It's between you and the Lord. Once again, Shabbat Shalom, and thank you for being a part of Lion and Lamb Ministries. Now, let us set apart this week and this from the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach to you. Please join with our family as we usher in the Sabbath. over the cup. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Husbands, now let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for my wonderful wife that you have given to me. I thank you, Lord, 
for her and for I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing. Bless her as she sees about the ways of the household, as she takes care of the children and educates them. And Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless her on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha. Nedahar Bachudesh No Ratehilot O Se Fele O Se Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha Yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabbat, la'asot et hashabbat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom hashavi shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ba'a. 
Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Leolam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avanecha v'depardabam b'shivtecha b'yetecha uv'lechtecha v'derech u'shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ota yadecha v'heyu la'totavolt b'inenecha u'chetavtam ha'mazuzot b'techa uv'sharecha All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? Can I make it past the curse? Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I need my eyes to see? Oh, I don't know. Don't let me stumble home. Let me have no doubt that will keep me out of the promise you have for. Sometimes I'm sure that you're at the door Then doubt comes over me When the shofar sounds, will I step out? Will I need my ears to be? Will I need my ears to believe? Oh, why don't I, how I plead? Have mercy on me. 
Path through the world, 
heal the broken heart For the time that I was given I'm as happy as ever But I know that I have My time has come And I will not be afraid Y'all has shown The path through the woods The sparkling waters Are oh so beautiful Y'all has shown The path through the woods The sparkling waters Are oh so beautiful Keep me to your Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parasha Ha'azinu. Chapter 32. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew, and the droplets on the fresh grass, and as showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of Adonai, ascribe greatness to our Elohim, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, an Elohim of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay Adonai, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Adonai's portion is his people. Yaakov is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Adonai alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook Elohim who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not Elohim, to gods whom they have not known. 
new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the Elohim who gave you birth. Adonai saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not Elohim. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest parts of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. Both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man of gray hair. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say, Our hand is triumphant, and Adonai has not done all this. For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and Adonai had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Amorah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For Adonai will vindicate his people, and will have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their strength is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. And he will say, Where are their Elohim, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no Elohim besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Then Moshe came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Yehoshua the son of Nun. When Moshe had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you, indeed it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Yarden to possess. 
Adonai spoke to Moshe that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Avarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aharon your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Ha'azinu. Now in the last Parashah, Moshe placed the blessing and the curse before Israel and asked us to choose life. In this week's Parashah Ha'azinu, he sings a song. This song, however, is not a happy song. It starts off well enough. Verses 1 through 4, which we'll look at here in a moment, contain some profound and very encouraging statements. But the rest of the song is quite somber and actually pretty foreboding. It speaks of the unfaithfulness of Israel and the subsequent curses that accompany disobedience. This song serves as a warning that when we've arrived at the place of peace, security, and prosperity, that our hearts are too often led astray from following after him. While the blessings we read in the last parasha are too numerous to count, the responsibility to represent Adonai to the nations comes with a very high price, particularly when material abundance brings with it the tendency to lead to self-reliance rather than to rely upon him, the one who provided all these things. We'll see in the next parasha the final chapters of the Torah, that Moshe returns the theme to one of blessing. But for this week, the song of Moshe is not exactly one of celebration and victory. Ironic, then, that we see this song being sung by the hosts of heaven in Revelation chapter 15. It says there, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of Elohim is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of Elohim. And they sang the song of Moshe, the bondservant of Elohim, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Adonai Elohim, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. What an amazing vision John had. Can you imagine what that day will be like? Now, a question that should naturally arise, though, is this. In what way was this heavenly group singing the song of Moshe? After all, this song was pretty somber. That can only be answered by returning to the first four verses of Moshe's song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 32 reads like this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, an Elohim of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, to start off, we know that the reference to the rock is pointing to Yeshua. 
There are numerous New Testament verses that cite Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, equating Yeshua with the foundation stone, a precious cornerstone laid in Zion. Additionally, Paul refers to Yeshua as the rock that followed the children of Israel around in the wilderness and brought forth water for them to drink. But beyond that, there's something here that links these two passages, but it's hidden in the Hebrew and not so easy to see in the English. Where we read in verse 4 that it says, He is an Elohim of faithfulness. The Hebrew there is El Emunah. Now you might recognize that. That might sound familiar to you. The Hebrew word Emunah is most frequently translated in the English as truth and is the root word for the word that we normally would say in agreement with someone, Amen. When we say Amen, we are essentially saying truth or may it be established. Then it says, Tzadik v'yashar hu, righteous and upright is he. So we have an El of truth, a God of truth, who is righteous and upright. Thus, when we look back at Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, we see the reference to this passage. When those who are gathered on the sea of glass say, O Adonai Elohim, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways. It's a direct reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, 4 and the Song of Moshe. May we do well to heed the words of this song, to heed the words of Moshe. May we be a people who are not self-reliant, but instead, may we always be reliant upon the King who is righteous and true. May we be a people who are not self-focused, but instead, may our focus be firmly fixed upon Him. May we become a people who seek truth from the truthful one, who seek to become upright as we pursue the upright one. May we be a people who are found singing the song of Moshe and the song of the Lamb. And may we proclaim the name of Adonai and ascribe greatness to our Elohim. Shabbat Shalom. Uh. Uh, if you have looked into a Torah scroll and, and seen the Hebrew scriptures, that you know that the Ha'azinu passage comes in two bold columns that are set up there. And if you were to go to 2 Samuel and see a Hebrew scroll of this, uh, see a Hebrew picture of this, what you'll find is that it's not written in a full column. Uh, there's like a piece of text, a piece of text, and there's a gap between them and then a, a line of text, and there's gaps on either side, and, 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 and it's kind of the stair-step uh, kind of presentation. Part of that is to indicate that something special is taking place in the text, and in this particular case, like Ha'azinu, it's a song. Moses wrote this song. It's written for us there in Deuteronomy, and this is a song and that's the reason why there's a parallel of this passage to Ha'azinu. This is a song from King David uh, that he is, and it's very, very similar to Psalms 18. In fact, the beginning of Psalms 18 is virtually the same as here in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And this chapter goes on for 61 verses, 
and is uh, uh, the whole thing, the whole text is song. Now, if you have in your Bibles, like in my Bible, there's a further indentation in the text where the start of this text line moves over a little bit to the right. It's indented, and the indentation in my particular Bible indicates that it's a music. It's words for a music. I don't know what your particular Bible has, but they'll usually, in most translations, give you some kind of indicator. Uh, it'll columnize it uh, within it, something to indicate that this is music that has been, uh, that is, and these are words that go with that music. So without any further introduction, let's dive in here and let's see about this song that King David is writing and is sharing with us. Verse 1, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if you know the basic story of King David, uh, when he was anointed to be king, it was while King Saul was still alive. King Saul resented that uh, very, very much, pursued him. David had to escape for his life. And David, this, this caused David to have to escape into different parts of the land, primarily the mountainous regions, the regions that might have caves and other kinds of things like that. The rocky terrain, not the open fields, not the open area. He had to hide, and he had a band of men who joined with him and aided him to do this. And Saul, of course, went running around the country trying to uh, capture him, to kill him. There comes a story in, in the course of that where they went to a place called Engedi. Engedi is down near the Dead Sea. Uh, it's the south of the Jordan River, and along the western bank is a very craggy, mountainous region. And there's, at, at Getty, there specifically is fresh water flowing out of the ground that comes down a series of little falls and then goes into the Dead Sea. And it's a great camping place if you want to get fresh water. And essentially what King David did was he was hidden in that area. He and his men were hidden up in there, and King Saul came and decided to camp there. He's looking for David. He doesn't know David is there. And to protect the king, they took him up into one of the caves, up into the higher areas where there was only one way you could go up, and uh, he's asleep up there. Well, it turns out King David is up a little bit higher than him, <laughs> hiding. And King David comes down and doesn't slay Saul, he, he cuts off a piece of his garment um, and then hides and Saul comes down and later David confronts Saul and shows to Saul, hey, uh, if I wanted to kill you, I could have killed you. By the way, here's the corner of your garment that I cut off. And Saul at that point decided to uh, capitulate, not didn't pursue David any further. But leading up to that point, uh, Saul was pursuing him and constantly, uh, you know, after him. This, this put David in great danger with the men that he's with. Now, on top of that, there were other enemies, you know, besides them, besides Saul in the course of David's life. Everybody thinks, well, hey, David was anointed uh, king. Everything just went hunky-dory. You know, that's just not true. 
uh, he had enemies both outside of Israel as well as inside of Israel. He had revolts, you know, against him. Certain men tried to steal the kingdom from him and to lead other men astray. He had to deal with every bit of it. In fact, it was great conflict. It kind of sounds like um, the conflict a, a normal guy would go through any time he moves into a leadership position. It's very similar. I, I can just tell you, when you move into leadership, whether it be in a company or of any type, you're, you're going to find that not everybody agrees with you. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, who have great rebellion against authority. And if they see you as an authority figure, they'll come against you. They're, they're, they're rebelling against authority. And one of the things that as a, as a leader and as a teacher, spiritual leader and a teacher, those that come against me, one of the things that the Lord reminds me is the conflict is really not with you, Monty. The conflict is they're having is with him, the Lord. I simply am a representative. I just simply represent some of the ministry of the Lord, some of the authority of the Lord. And so they come against me uh, where it, it appears to be personal, but in truth, in fact, they're really just coming against the Lord. And some of what is in the song is King David is, is dealing with, and in fact, this is in the aftermath, He's looking back and realizing that the conflicts that he's gone through, the enemies that he's had, that it was real, the Lord was really sustaining him. The Lord had purposes for him, and, uh, and therefore the Lord is the person who delivered him and saved him out of all of these difficult situations. So with that introduction, let's look right at the words where he had to say, the beginning of the song, verse 2, and he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, thou dost save me from violence. And um, there's going to be an interesting thing that's going to follow through here. And I need to just step aside for a moment, kind of do a sidebar on this so that everybody understands. In the faith that we all share, we know the ideals and the goals of our faith are to be at peace, to avoid contention, to avoid trouble, to take the humble way. Those are clearly the teachings and those are the goals that we have as we walk out our faith. The scripture does not encourage us to, you know, pull your sword out and cut the guy's head off. Okay. And we don't take vengeance. Okay. You know, the Lord, vengeance belongs to the Lord and so forth. However, let me make sure I'm very clear about this. The God we serve is a great warrior. The God we serve when he comes back at the day of the Lord. He is coming back, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the right kind of words that say this, to slaughter his enemies, to shatter them, to so destroy them that they can never rise again. Now, interestingly enough, David's life as king over Israel is a kind of a micro picture of that. Because King David, when he went into these battles, 
it was full slaughter mode. And he was a very valiant warrior. And part of the reason that the Messiah has the title, the son of David, is because of this. That David was such a mighty warrior. When he was in good stead uh, with King Saul, and they were fighting Philistines, David, after the Goliath thing, was, was a leader, a military leader, and David dispatched him to go out and to bring back um, uh, the evidence of having killed the, the Philistines by taking off their foreskins. I mean, it's gruesome when you stop and think about that for a moment. But, you know, if you're really wanting to send a message to the enemy, I mean, that is as serious as taking their hair or cutting their heads off or whatever. And, and uh, let me just tell you, as a man, that just runs shivers down you. I mean, you know, it just is scary that the enemy is planning on doing that to you. Well, you know, Saul uh, asked him to go out and be that kind of a warrior, and he was, even more than Saul understood. Whereas, you know, and the, the women would sing songs. Saul went out and, and did a thousand. King David, he went out and he did 10,000. And there are stories uh, some of the most interesting biblical stories, historical stories, of the mighty men of David, men that were selected, that, that fought with David. They stayed with him. Now, the scripture tells us uh, that when these men went out with David, they're, they're, and this is what I love about this, it said there were three things about these men that joined David. He said, one, they were all in debt, they were all in distress, and they were all disgusted. And, and that pretty much describes a lot of people. And these guys who were basically nobodies joined with King David and they became mighty men. They became mighty warriors that fought side by side and hand to hand with King David. And his great victories came as a result of that group of men uh, working with him. It says that they were so committed to David that they were committed to the task to see David made king over all of Israel. It wasn't for just a battle. It wasn't just one particular enemy. They were committed to seeing him to be made king over all Israel. And he was a leader of leaders. Now, today, if you talk about an advanced military force, well, you're talking about special forces. You're talking about SEAL teams. You're talking about Army Rangers, Marine Recon. You're talking about all these highly trained people. In the Bible, David was all of that and more. Him and his mighty men, they were, they were a select crew. A couple of interesting stories about that. Just I want you to get this picture, how mighty a warrior he really was. He got caught, David, with another man. He got caught in the middle of a barley field and was surrounded by Philistines. And his partner had his back with a sword, and he had a sword. And the Philistines came in and attacked him. Now, you'd think this would just be over with in a few minutes. Nope. King David and this man slew 300 Philistines in this barley field. The blood off of his sword had run down so much. There'd been so much blood on it 
that it, that it got around his hand and where he was holding his sword, and it dried there, and it welded his hand to his sword, where he couldn't let go of the sword. He couldn't, he couldn't drop the sword. They had to take the sword off. They had to, that's how much blood had clotted down on his wrist and his hand holding that sword. These two men slew that many Philistines. To show you the inspiration of the leadership, David was just sighing one, one night and talking about, oh, it would be so nice to have a drink from the well at the garrison in Bethlehem. You know, and the Philistines had come in and set up a garrison there. They'd set up a defensive position. And his men heard that David would like to have a drink from the well at Bethlehem. Well, there's a whole bunch of Philistines there. So a couple of these mighty men, they go to Bethlehem and they bust through the ranks. They go in and do a raid, do one of these SEAL team raids. They get a cup of water out of that well and they bring it back to him. He said, Here, here's the water you wanted. At which point, of course, David poured it out. Uh, to the Lord because of the men and the sacrifice they had made. Now, that's a, that's a SEAL team mission. You know, go into the midst of the enemy, get something, extract it, and get out of there. Okay. Um, that's the kind of warrior he was, and that was the kind of warrior chief he was. He led men who did these kinds of exploits. And when there was a big, a big showdown and so forth, he was equally capable to the task of leading great armies and defeating innocent. As a result of King David's efforts, he captured more territory for Israel in his time. It was the greatest uh, amount of the land belonging to Israel. Israel was at its strength compared to any other nation around it. Other nations feared Israel, um, and he had the most territory of, of any king who ever had that ruled Israel. And in fact, that's part of the story of him, how he got a little egotistical about that. His pride kind of puffed up. He decided he wanted to number the kingdom because he'd captured all this. And of course, he was, the Torah warns the king not to do that and not to number the people, but, but to take up a half shekel you know, for it. He didn't do that. He started numbering the people. He had counselors told him, don't do it. He persisted, and this is when the Lord came and began to punish him. And it's from that punishment that the Lord then commissioned him to go to Ornan the Jebusite and buy his threshing floor, which would be the ground for the temple. And so God used him to get the ground ready so that the temple, he and King David also assembled all the materials for the temple. He was not permitted to build the temple, though, because he was a man of war. It would be his son, the son of David, that would actually build the temple. Solomon is the one who actually constructed the temple that King David, his father, had assembled all the materials for. God established a covenant with King David. It's tied together with the city of Jerusalem. And, um, and it is, it's from his lineage, it's from his um, um, descendants, that's the word I'm looking for, 
I almost get it out, descendants from his descendants, the Messiah will come forth. Uh, and there's profound implications of that for the Messiah to come forth. The Messiah, as I said to you before, he comes and he's meek, meek as a lamb. The Messiah comes forth and he's, um, uh, you know, he, he, he comes and he's very sweet, forgiving, gracious, all the good things, all the stuff that we, he heals people. You know, he's not out killing people. He didn't try to raise up an insurrection against the Romans. He didn't go and conquer the Roman Empire. You know what? The people thought the Messiah would do that. Why? Because he's the son of David. Surely he will be as, as powerful as David. And as David conquered the whole land of Israel, why the Messiah, the son of David, he'll, he'll do even greater things. He'll win the whole world. But they, but they didn't quite understand how God uses King David as a warrior type and versus how the Messiah comes as a shepherd and comes as a lamb. Um, my ministry is called Lion of Lamb Ministries. Why did I choose this term? Well, uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a whole lot of people when they look at the prophetic, they don't quite read all of Isaiah 11, and they think that the lion lays down with the lamb. And that's the very common thing. You'll see the lion-lamb expressions. It's a super oversimplified version of Isaiah 11. And it's talking about the future kingdom when all has been reconciled and the, the Messiah has come with us and, and he's with us and, and everything is peaceful and everything's great. The lion lays down with the lamb. Well, actually in Isaiah 11, that's not what it says. It says the lion lays down with the calf and the wolf lays down with the lamb. But as I said, it gets super simplified uh, together and they don't quite repeat it. Part of the reason why I picked Lion of Lamb Ministries was the confusion of that prophecy that I wanted my ministry and the eschatology teachings we did was not repeat the confusion and the misunderstandings of things in the past, but to come forth and say, really, what does the prophecy say? And in just like instead of believing the lion lays down with the lamb, go to Isaiah 11, see what the prophecy really says, and you'll see that it's a little different than what you thought. And I wanted to do the same when it comes to eschatology. And in the days when I first started, there was people looking for the imminent return of God. And by the way, that's not the plan, folks. Let's look what the prophecy says. Oh, well, he comes and it suddenly is over with. We all go to heaven. no. That's not the plan. That's not what the prophecies. That's the oversimplified version of trying to explain the end of the ages. So I wanted to uh, be accurate and en enlighten people and edify people with what the scripture really says. But there was another there was another reason why I liked Lion and Lamb Ministries. And that is um, and that's part of the byword that we have for our title is that the Messiah first came as a lamb, but this time he comes as a lion. And one of the word pictures I always use with people, if you had a whole assembly of people, let's say we had a had hundred or so people here, and all of a sudden somebody walks in the door and they have a little baby lamb. I mean, what would be the 
immediate response of the audience. Oh, I'll tell you what the response would be. All of a sudden, there'd be people cracking a smile, and they'd be going, ooh, ah, you know, and oh my goodness, how cute. And they'd want to come up, and the kids would want to pet it. And, and in other words, there'd be a, a, a very positive response to it. But let's say we have the same group of people, and this time I have a guy, and he walks in with a lion, a full-grown male lion with the big mane. And all he has to do is just walk in the room. What do you think the audience would do then? They would be going the opposite direction as fast as they can, probably trampling over one another, knocking chairs over and so forth, trying to do everything they can to get out of that room where that lion is. That's one word picture to explain the comparison and the contrast between the Messiah coming the first time as a lamb, and now this time when he returns, he comes as a lion. And the impact on it is incredible. The, if you read down through the song, uh, David is in explicit terms <laughs> describing how God slaughtered his enemies. He scattered his enemies. He, he um, you know, what we might use as the common expression, he threw them under the bus and then ran over them a couple of times. And that's what God under, did with King David. King David gives full attribution to God for his victories. Now, like I said, that's not the way we normally view our faith. That's, you know, and so, but King David very emphatically did. And it was really a foreshadowing for us of the power and the warrior and champion qualities of the Messiah that we serve. Believe you me, uh, one of the things that comforts my heart is when I see the most outrageous things taking place human behavior, humans mistreating humans, the, the, the harm going on. And the thing that comforts me in the midst of that, all there's a seething kind of indignation in me about it, is I know the person who's going to render judgment on that, and you people have no idea how incredible his judgment's going to be on you. And he will be doing the righteous and just thing. And he's not only going to do it, he is capable of doing it. You should never hesitate in thinking, will God judge his enemies? He will. The guilty will not go unpunished. And when we see him at the day of the Lord, all of us are going to be shocked at not only his power, how swift he is to destroy his enemies. There's one little phrase in the book of Zephaniah that talks about the day of the Lord that has always intrigued me, and it's talking about God's judgment upon that day, how pervasive it is, how strong it will be. Uh, 
and I happen to know this for a fact, I, I don't know if you know this, but the world and all the governments of the world have been doing digging underground tunnels and underground refuges for their leaders of their country and for the elite and for the rich people to be able to go into underground bunkers uh, should there be a great calamity on the surface of the earth. And in Zephaniah, the Lord specifically says that he has a lamp that he will go search out all the holes of the earth and he will get every one of them. And I know how fortified these underground things are. And that to me is, a, is, there's an, is an example of, wow, his power is extremely great that he can do that. King David, um, when he went into battle, was incredible. And the men that he led and the inspiration that he gave to them was equally incredible. The force and the power that he was able to bring within his day. And other cultures, other world cultures, they know about King David. The Romans, for example, they know about King David. King David was an example for all great military powers throughout history of how, how powerful the leadership and the force and the capability. And mind you, this is with spears, shields, uh, some bows and arrows, and a sword. And he's going into combat, hand-to-hand -hand combat, and he's winning. And um, he wasn't that big a guy either. We don't think he was really that much of a statue, not like Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. David was this little guy. Well, that's kind of one of those expressions I've always told people. I said, you've got to look out for the little guys. You've got to look out for them. They, 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 they will surprise you. Now, I'm not going to go reading through all of the verses, the 60-some verses that are here, but I do want to take you down to the conclusion of where uh, he sings where in the end. And he says um, in verse, um, verse 50, he says this, Therefore I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to thy name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. The reason I, I want you to take note of that is the contrast here is incredible. That's, I'm fighting for words to describe how incredible this thing is. Whereas there is a tower of deliverance, and I mean when it talks about a tower of deliverance, we're talking about a fighting tower. We're talking about where you are elevated above your enemy and you, you destroy him at your will. And when you're up against a tower against you, it's very difficult as a military objective. But if you're in the tower, you know, you're picking and choosing your targets and you can take them out. And so he shows the contrast on that. And then the other on the flip side, he says, and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. All of that might and that power to defeat enemies is not what the Lord uses with us. That's not what it is. What he uses with us is he anoints us. 
He gives us graciously the Messiah King who loves us and will go to extra lengths for us and shows us loving kindness to be kind to us in every situation. He's even sensitive about how we fear what's going on. Besides being nice to us instead of wiping us out. I've always, my, my greatest ironic question I've always asked of the Lord is, Lord, really, you're a righteous God. You know very good and well we're all messed up. We've always been messed up. We're always, you know, corrupt. I don't know why you just didn't wipe us out and start with a new planet, you know, to build your bride and build your kingdom and so forth. Why, why, why hang in with us? Why be kind to us? I don't know that I'll ever be able to understand the, the answer to that question because we're talking about the, the weight and the breadth and the height of the love of God toward us. I, it's a bigger thing than I can get my arms around it or that I can see. I, I, can't, I can't fully understand all of that. And this verse is, sets up the contrast to see that and um, how God loved David and David loved the Lord. I would remind everybody, Psalms 119 is the love of the Torah. And David is the only king that ever wrote a psalm telling everybody how much he loved the Torah. So he was a man of the Torah. Uh, he wrote many of the psalms which are worship. He helped to lay the groundwork for the worship of God, the corporate worship of God with the temple system, including hiring all the musicians and providing all of the thing for the worship of God to support the priests to be able to do those things, and very clearly ruled the land of Israel which, with righteousness and justice so that everyone benefited. Everyone was uh, doing well. If I could make a very, very short comment um, on some of the dynamic that's going on in the world today, particularly here in the United States. We have a group of people uh, who are rising up. I don't know that they're a majority. I think they're a plurality. And they really don't believe in our country anymore. They don't believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in the right of free speech. Uh, they, really, they don't believe in it. They assert it, they argue about it, but they don't believe it. And they think their particular thing that's irritating them, that they want to protest, they think their protest is far superior to the entire nation where all of us live. And they're willing to make their priority so great so as to bring down the country. Well, Israel has done this multiple times. Multiple times. And that was the measure of when we had a bad king versus we had a good team. When we had a good king, he would assert the nation of Israel, the worship of God and righteous things. Now, was everything perfect? No, of course not. But that was the emphasis. That's where the leadership was. And the very conflict that we see going on in our own country today is likened to the conflicts we see described here. I have news for all of the protesters and all of the people that are all unrighteous and want to tear this place down and harm the innocent and so forth. I have, I have news for them. 
there is a king coming back. And when he comes back, he has a book and a record of every unrighteous deed done by everybody. His memory is not short. And if you didn't stand for righteousness and justice, then you weren't part of his throne and his kingdom. And if you scattered the people instead of gathering the people, you will pay a price. And it is far more than the people understand. It's far, far greater. There's a... I wish we had a King David right now in our country. Of course, the bad thing about that would be there would be a lot of people getting killed. They would be no more, and there wouldn't be any more of that nonsense. Because that's what King David did in Israel. He went out and killed all of his enemies, so there wouldn't be any more of that nonsense going on. No more rebellion. When people rebel like that, let me tell you what happens. The innocent people are forgotten. And they get run over. The people who had no stake in any of this, they're the one that suffer and pay the harm, you know, while these guys go out and assert their egos. You know, the only way to really defeat that, wipe them all out. Wipe them all out. In our case, we need to vote them out. That's the only way to get rid of them. All right, well, this is our portion. I hope that uh, you'll read through there, see the song. Don't be shocked by the language, because David is a mighty warrior, and he's expressing his faith to God for how God used him and helped him to be the mighty warrior that he was. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 10, hold your finger at verse 14, where our Brett Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, once again for your Torah, your teaching, your instruction. And Father, as we are uh, closing out the Torah cycle with this, the second to last portion, Father, I pray that, uh, as always, may the Word come alive and be powerful. May it minister to your people, to Israel, scattered throughout the nations. Father, I pray that this would be the Word and the voice that goes out from this ministry, as well as the other ministries that we work together with. And Father, I pray that you would bless this time, bless this Sabbath, as we... Uh, turn this time and this teaching over to you. We thank you for all of these things. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Our Torah portion is Ha'azinu, which means give ear. It's the penultimate Torah portion uh, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it is the second song of Moses. It is the Moses' final uh, words of instruction, warning, to the children of Israel uh, before they enter into the promised land. And this is in, in everything that's been said before. Now it's in the form of a song, a song that uh, has, is poetic and that we can remember it and we can hear these words uh, that are given to us as the, the words of, of Moses to teach us that, yes, the Lord has blessed us. Yes, the Lord has delivered the children of Israel through the wilderness. And yet, 
we will be disobedient. Yes, we will grow fat and with all the blessing that we have, only to then be judged, only to be scattered into the nations, only then to be made jealous of the nations. When the word goes out into the nations to bring the children of Israel back, uh, what's going to happen? Even though it's a prophecy of judgment upon Israel, this song of Moses that is given to us. Ultimately, it's necessary. It was necessary for the children of Israel to be scattered into the nations because out of the regathering of Israel does all of the families of the earth be blessed and be gathered back to Israel to be one with the God that created them. This is the greatest story ever told. Hollywood tries to capture the magic of these stories in all of the romantic comedies where the, you, the story goes, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back again. And by act three, we everyone is happy and rejoicing and crying and, the, and what a compelling story that it is. Such is the nature of the relationship between God and mankind. In the beginning, in the garden, we were one with God. We loved each other. We were, we were in covenant with each other. But the children of Israel and the sons of and mankind separate ourselves from God. We, we divide ourselves from God with evil and with sin and with all of these things. And we are not one with the Lord anymore. But the love story doesn't end there. God still loves mankind, loves his creation, loves his people, chooses Israel among all people to be a kingdom of priests, to be the representative of God's covenant relationship with mankind. And so then through the deliverance of the sending of prophets, the sending of a Messiah, all of Israel is to be gathered back again with the Lord. And in the process of that, does all of the families of the earth, where Israel has been scattered into the nations, they will gather and reap the harvest of, the, of souls of the world and join back together and come back to God. This is the most compelling love story that has ever been written, and it's simply the history of mankind and the creation of God. So, with that as a preface to why we're talking about this, this is why Israel had to be scattered, so that that regathering could, could, could happen. Now, how does that regathering happen? Well, we as a Messianic ministry here at Lion of Land Ministries have been laboring to see that regathering, the restoration of the whole house of Israel, the restoration of Ephraim and Judah and the Israel and the kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and bringing all of these things back together. This is why my father named me what he named me, so that we would see this prophecy happen. So this is what we're talking about. This is our goal, this is the plan, and this is the message of the gospel and the message of why Yeshua came, sent out his disciples into the nations with the testimony of Yeshua so that the people would hear the testimony and come back and repent and return back to believing in God and keeping his commandments as he gave them to Moses and gave us the law for us to obey and show that we love the Lord and we are in covenant with him. Faith comes by hearing. We have to hear the word, the, the, the voice of God, the testimony of the Messiah goes into the nation so that when somebody hears it, they respond. They hear it and they remember. They hear it and they repent. They hear it and they turn back. They hear it and they cry out to the God that created them. I saw a cool uh, series of videos on YouTube recently where it was a non-Christian listening to contemporary Christian worship music. 
and he's and, and he's a musician himself, so he knows what good music sounds like. He knows you know the good chord progression, you know drums, whatever it might be. And they put and they they have him listen to the some contemporary Christian worship music, stuff that's recent in the last couple of years. And he's hearing it, and he's enjoying the music and the flow of the contemporary genre of music. But then he starts reacting to the words. He starts reacting to the words. Even though he himself is not a professed Christian, he hears the words and he starts crying. When the song is about the love of God, about how God loves his people... And then he's sitting there and he's all like, we're singing about this love song between God and his people. And he takes a step back and he says, what? why can't we love each other that way? And it's like the, he, he's, he, the music penetrated his spirit and he gets it. This love that God has for us, why don't we have that love for one another? Why don't we have that same type of love? And it's that hearing of that music, of that word that penetrates the soul, that causes a reaction, that, 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 that causes tears to come to then learn something and realize something. And that's exactly the whole purpose of the song of Moses at the end of Torah. And that the words of God is supposed to penetrate us, go into our ears and stir in us a reaction. That's why he sent prophets. That's why the, there is such thing as a work of prophecy, is one that speaks the word of God to a people that need to hear it so that they might repent and turn back. Not a prophet that predicts the future, but a prophet that says, do this and reap the blessings, or don't do this and reap the curses. Now you choose. And the words of the prophet and that lesson and that choice is supposed to compel you or convict you to make the right decision. And not that he's, he's predicting the future, what a prophet might be considered to do. It's like, no, well, the words that were spoken penetrated you to hear and to obey and to react to what the Lord is trying to say to you. For our Brit Hadashah portion for this, uh, for the portion of Ha'azinu, which means give ear, there's a beautiful passage of scripture that I want to home in, focus on, that really this entire message is going to basically be a commentary on the last half of Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11, because it's all about the words of uh, Paul, the apostle, speaking to Gentiles, to the Romans, and talking about how the word and the testimony of the Messiah is so, to, so that all might be blessed, so that all might be adopted in as believers in Christ into the family of God, and that we then receive the blessings of the inheritance of God. But while at the same time talking about Israel, giving Israel as an example of the one and the people who rejected God, rejected the commandments, killed every prophet, killed the Messiah... Yet the Lord still loves Israel, and, it and Israel is the pattern and the example of how much love God truly has for his people and for his creation. And Paul is teaching us and giving this contrast to us. I talked about this last week in last week's portion, the beginning part of Romans chapter 10, where he's quoting and talking about how the word of God is very near to you. It's not so far off in the heavens or in the abyss or across the sea or, what, or any of these things, but it's very near to you. All you have to do is confess, and when it says, All, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Now he continues on, beginning at verse 14 of Romans chapter 10, where he says this, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? See, that's very easy for you to say where you're like, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how do we get to the point to where they're calling on the name of the Lord? How do they hear it? What do they need to hear? What does the preacher need to say? So that they call on the name of the Lord because they need some provocation to make that call. It's the same reason why if you have to pick up the phone and call somebody, you usually need a reason to do it. So we have to teach and we have to convict them or they need to hear something that would provoke those to call on the name of the Lord. But what if they haven't believed? Continues on. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is the, 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 this is the idea of the preaching, the message of Yeshua, of the gospel. It goes out into the nations, and it, this is what has to be done. The good news has to be shared. It has to be spoken. It has to be preached. So the people can hear it. However, verse 16 says this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. This is what, we, like I said, the word goes out and we have to hear it. We have to hear the testimony. Now, here's the thing about Israel. All throughout the history of Israel, that we have all of the uh, instructions within, whether it's carried on through mainstream Judaism or those that are adopted into Israel, and we read the entirety of Scripture and the entirety of Torah, that we know we are looking for the Messiah. We know we are looking for a prophet like unto Moses. We have all the prophecies pointing to the need for the Messiah. Israel is looking for the Messiah. All of Israel, you know, uh, Judaism. Judaism, some sects of Judaism might say that, uh, that you know, the Messiah, King David was a Messiah, there's all types of Messiah, all types of Messiahs, so it's like the one portion of Judaism usually argues against Christianity that it's all like, oh, what, what is a Messiah exactly? Well, excuse me, but for the majority of Judaism, it is a messianic religion that is looking for a Messiah that has been prophesied in their words, in their scripture, in the Tanakh, for thousands of years to look for a Messiah. Judaism is looking for it. So you would think that when the testimony of a man coming and presenting and, 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 and doing all the things that Yeshua did as the Son of God, performing these miracles, the things that he said, preaching and teaching the Torah greater than any teacher that has ever come, that there's the Messiah. There he is. You think Judaism would hear it? And obey and follow, and they, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. So why doesn't all of Israel believe? Because they might hear the words, but they don't really hear the words. Remember, we've been talking about spiritual he he uh, hearing, spiritual seeing, opening your spiritual eyes, opening your spiritual ears. They can hear the words, but it's not penetrating. Even though Israel's been looking for a Messiah, they've been looking for the one who is going to pre bring good news, who's, uh, all the good news and, and the fulfillment of Abraham's seed and the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would to be blessed. Israel is looking, but not all Israel is hearing. 
They're not hearing the word as it comes. Continuing on, Paul says this in verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. The word has gone out. The testimony of Yeshua has gone into the world. There's there's no question about that. So, So could they say, well, we haven't heard it. Is the message and the testimony of Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, has it gone out in a way to where, well, it really hasn't, it hasn't really gained a lot of traction. There's not really a whole lot of knowledge and and the word uh, and the testimony of Yeshua hasn't gotten very far. Is that something we truly can say in this generation? Actually, no. Now, there are some parts of the world isolated that probably have never heard the gospel, have never seen a Bible, and and, and there are evangelists out there that are committed and have been laid on their heart to get that word out to the farthest ends of the earth. And God is using them because that word is still going out. But ultimately, when we sit here in modern times, can we even say that any educated Jew living in the world today, that they don't know anything about this guy named Jesus Christ? Actually, what it is, is we've gotten to the point in time where the knowledge of, of that, that there is a belief and there is a testimony of Yeshua the Messiah that has come out that has formed a religion called Christianity that has formed the largest religion in the world. And there are very few people that could say in the modern world that it's all like, yes, I, I, I've never heard of the, this Jesus Christ Christian Messiah type of character. The majority of the world has. They've heard it at least, or that there's some knowledge of it, even whether it's in Islam or in Judaism. We all know what the three big religions are, and a lot of educated people know kind of some of the tenets of, of all three. Really, we do. The word has gone out. Now, of course, preachers have not taught it correctly, and, and, and the word has not, it's, it's not been presented exactly or, or, or said in a way that not every Jew has had a chance to sit down and truly hear a teacher teach the words of Yeshua in a way that it's digestible and that it's ministering to them. All that's out there really, you know, for the majority of things, is just there's the knowledge of it. So I'm, uh, I'm well aware of the fact that, you know, I can't say that, oh, every Jew has heard of the story of Yeshua the Messiah. No, they, they haven't, it hasn't been presented to them, but at least that knowledge is there. There is this, this idea, but then again, why, why do they not believe? Why do they not see that he was the Messiah? That he is the Messiah for all the believers that have seen and made that confession of faith. Why isn't there more? Why do the Jews not see it? They don't see their Messiah. The one that was promised, that fulfilled the prophecies of his of what, what, the first coming, and that is not he, he is going to fulfill more prophecies when he comes a second time, and that why why do they not see it? Well, the word has gone out, but not all Israel is hearing. Paul continues, and this is where he actually quotes from our Torah portion the the the, the word. Uh, um, the Song of Moses. Verse 19 of Romans 10 says this, But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But, it, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I 
The Lord has stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul is quoting from prophets here. He's quoting from Isaiah, and he's quoting from the words of Moses, even in the Song of Moses, where he says, I will provoke the children of Israel to jealousy by those who are not a nation. At the time, there was no nation or, or denomination of Christianity, or the, the religion didn't exist. And in fact, the world has become extremely prosperous, and, and the United States of America, as a Christian nation, has grown into a great power, and a great world power, and, and we are successful as a nation, as a whole, in the global landscape of things. We didn't know those things back when Moses was around saying those things. But the testimony of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, has gone out into the nations. Many people have heard this word, and it was a people who wasn't even seeking a Messiah. Israel has always been seeking a Messiah. But all the people of the, of, of the world or any unbelievers, people who were atheists, people who didn't believe anything, they, didn't, they weren't looking for a Messiah, yet the Messiah found them. That word that went out all into the nations... That was going, that, that some hear, and they don't really hear. Some hear, and then they really do hear spiritually what's going on, and they confess their faith in the Messiah, and then they are saved. That salvation has come. Some people weren't looking. Israel has been looking. Some people have not. Yet that word has fall on, fallen on ears that hear and hearts that understand, and that there are those scattered into the nations that have the testimony of the blessing and the provision that God wanted to give to Israel. And they hear those words. And there's a jealousy that takes place where Israel has, become, has been provoked to jealousy by the people who have gotten the blessing from the Lord. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles, in fact. And even if you go back to the Song of Moses and you go to the end of the Song of Moses, back to Deuteronomy 32, the end of the song is all about the Gentiles. Verse 43 of Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and, and render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will provide atonement for his land and his people. Rejoice, Gentiles! The end of the song is all about the Gentiles rejoicing because of the message that was going out intended for Israel. And that's exactly what has happened. Though he was calling to Israel, the nations responded. And this is all about the, the word and the testimony going out in the nations that it's not just about regathering all of Israel. That is what is intended, to bring back all the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel, to join them back together. But the, what also has occurred is the word and the testimony has gone out into the nations. And a great multitude of people have now come and confessed that faith. This is why we have Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is why this word and this testimony has gone out and has gone into all of these nations. See, what's happened in modern times and what the argument against Christianity is this, is that, you know, Jews, they look at this and they're like, oh, you know, here's this Paul guy who started the religion of Christianity, had to become this its own religion apart from Judaism. Judaism, we've always had it. We're, we're the oldest religion uh, in the world. We, we know what we believe, and we've been steadfast to follow these things, and in the line of the rabbis, and we know all these things. And this Paul guy came along, and he started his own religion. 
Well, but ultimately, because, and, and they say that because it's Gentiles of the world that believe and follow it. Even though it says the gospel was to the Jew first, again, they reject the New Testament and they reject that word, that it was Jews that originally began to believe these things originally, and then the Gentiles started believing. And so then, but as time went on, it became more, more Gentiles were believing in this Jesus Christ guy than Jews were. So then we sit here and result, and it's like, eh, they're just making it their own religion because it's not, about, it's not about Israel anymore. It's about this church that they're creating, and it's all about the Gentiles. Excuse me, but from the very beginning, all the families of the earth were supposed to be blessed, Jew and Gentile. From the very beginning, back to the Torah, Moses is speaking about that it's the Gentiles that will be caught up and will be believing in these things. Is there any evangelism on Judaism's part to get word to the Gentiles to come and join the family of God and to be caught up with the family of God? Because that's what we're looking for. The, the prophets say that people, that ten will grab the, the, the zitziot of a Jew and that they will, we know the Lord is with you and they'll come and follow. Or is Judaism reaching out to the people to then bring them in? No, they're not. They are no, there is not the evangelism within Judaism to go and try to convert and to, and to teach the blessings that God has given to Israel through the prophets, through Moses, to give that to all the Gentiles, even though that's what the Bible says is supposed to happen. We're supposed to be gathering up with us. Doesn't matter who they are. Gentile, Greek, Roman, Russian, even Arab all the families of the earth are supposed to be blessed from the seed of Abraham, then why aren't we actively working to see that reunification? No, we think that they've just started their own religion. They're doing their own thing. No, that's what was supposed to happen, was the word to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul was called to do. And that's what Paul is trying to share here in Romans. That finished out Romans chapter 10. Let's continue on. What does Romans 11 now talk about? Paul saying here, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. See, Paul's being accused of rejecting Judaism, of, 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 of that preaching that the Jews, they had their shot. Now God doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. Now God only wants to deal with the Gentiles and the new church that is being formed here in the first century. Is that what God really wants to do? God forbid. Certainly not. I'm not talking about God casting away Israel. And Paul gives his credentials here. Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Remember, they were seeking a Messiah. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that, that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. Talking about the people who haven't heard. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened and that they do not see, bow down their back always. These, we're talking about Israel's rejection. They have not heard the word even though they were seeking it. But does that mean that God has turned away from Israel? Cast them away as if they are nothing? Only we're now doing this Gentile thing? Paul says, God forbid. My, my New King James here, as it goes into verse 11 of Romans chapter 11, the headline, it's broken up into sections here, and the first part of chapter 11 is Israel's rejection is not completely total. Israel's not completely rejected. And Israel's rejection not Final is the new headline as we begin verse 11 of Romans 11. It says this, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, then their failure, then their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if they're being cast away into the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For it, if the first fruit is holy... The lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but it's the root that supports you. Let me keep, stop right there at verse 19 as I'm starting to say or, and, and starting to describe what's going on here. Israel was the original tree. It was the original branches that was seeking the Messiah. And those branches have been broken off. Those who have fallen away. So now we have a root that is ready to bring life. That It's like, okay, well, then we're going to graft branches into this tree so that life may grow. And, and, and Gentiles, those were, that are wild branches, those that were not originally a part of that original olive tree, can be grafted in and receive those same blessings. But the thing that he's trying to teach us is that those original branches that broke off, they can be grafted back into the same tree. And if by his teaching and his preaching that he is teaching Gentiles of the nations to come and join in with the life, the, the, the giving of life that God has through the testimony of Israel, through the, those roots and through that, uh, through that tree, that if some of the other branches, whatever gets grafted on, doesn't matter. Wild branches, natural branches. The one thing you do is don't boast against one branch or the other, especially when all have been broken off. Let me continue on. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. All right? Case closed. Once saved, always saved. Doesn't work. 
Because he just said that the natural branches that originally grew from the tree, they've been broken off, and then any new ones that have been grafted in don't get haughty. Don't then say, well, look, see what we got. It's like, no, if God was willing to break off the natural branches, how much easier is it for him to snap off one that was grafted in, especially if it was still in the process of uh, taking root, if you will? There's no such thing as once saved, always saved. Because once you think that you're in, that you've been grafted in, God has already shown he is willing to separate from those who reject his covenant. If you reject the covenant, he'll break you off the, off the tree whether you've been grafted back in or, or, or whether you were there originally from the very beginning, even that old branch that's been growing the whole time, if that branch doesn't produce good fruit, we'll snap that one right off. Don't ever get haughty boasting a one branch over another. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? It's like a, fitting a piece into a puzzle. If Israel can come back into the understanding and come back into covenant with God, the original God they were already in covenant with before, it, it, it's like a hand and a glove. They fit right back together because it was a natural, they, it was the tree they originally came from. There's no, there's no different species, there's no different challenge, whatever. God can easily graft back in that tree. And what a beautiful thing that it is when a Jew comes to faith in the Messiah and realizes the true nature of his relationship with God that was from the very beginning through Abraham. And then realizing the Messiah that has come and confessing faith in that Messiah to be grafted into its original natural olive tree. What an amazing thing that will be. Oh, by the way, the same thing's happening with wild branches as well. They're coming in, and they're getting all grafted in. Once again, don't, don't boast one branch or the other that somehow just because I'm a Jew by, by heritage that I somehow some, have some more important uh, role in the kingdom. No, it's like we're all being grafted back in, and that same warning goes. Any branch grafted back in could be broken off again. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the, elect, the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that though the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy." For God has committed to them all to disobedience, 
that he might have mercy on all. Look, the whole thing of this, this joyous occasion, if Israel had not rejected the covenant, then would there be any need for the word to go out to the Gentiles and the nations? Well, not in the way that it did. If Israel hadn't rejected the covenant, then Israel would have done that job. Israel would have been the kingdom of priests that would have gone to the nations and would have brought everybody in, into the faith of the Messiah, if Israel hasn't, hadn't rejected the covenant. But in their disobedience, the word has gone out, and that there is mercy to be had for everyone who has ever walked in disobedience. There is mercy to be had to come back into the faith. And the same mercy that Gentiles get for walking their entire life in sin or in rejection of the things of the Lord. The Jews also have uh, obtained mercy for them having the things of the Lord and then rejecting them, but then coming back. Mercy is to be had for all people. That this is the whole reason, and, and this is the whole idea. This whole divide between Jew and Gentile. Who are the people of God? Who is the testimony for? Who is supposed to be saved in all of this and through the testimony of Yeshua? Is the, is the testimony of Yeshua supposed to save all the Gentiles? Yes. Is it supposed to save all the Jews? Yes. Those two things are not opposed to each other. Yet we have religions today that try to make that divide. You guys do your thing over here and, and we'll do our thing over here. We, we, you know, let's not, let's not mix things right here, whatever, you know, we, we all have Judeo-Christian values, we all kind of believe in the same God, we all have the, the, the same original uh, scriptures, but let's just like, let's sort of separate because, you know, obviously God is doing, you know, two separate things, right? No, God's doing one thing, and we need to stop reject or stop dividing what God is doing with our own human mind and take a step back, open both eyes, and see what God is doing in all of it. <laughs> the, the, the belief in Yeshua and the work of the church that is done for 2,000 years has been leading people to the Messiah and Judaism having for all these years the testimony of the commandments of God and how to obey Him and how to be in covenant with Him and we're somehow thinking these two things are opposed to each other? Excuse me, but, there, but there's a tree that's sitting here ready to be fed through the roots and thriving and it's just waiting for whoever's willing to graft back into it. Whoever it is, whatever branch that it is. You want to find yourself and it's like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to, you know, I've broken off of that branch and I'm going to stick it in the ground and hope that it grows. That's not how Israel's supposed to work. That's not how God's people is supposed to work. Mercy is to be had for all people. Finishing out the chapter, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given, given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, and to whom be glory forever. Amen. Who, who is it that, that knows the mind of Messiah? That, the, that, that, that knows the, the mind of the Lord that says, you know, this is what the Lord's doing. We're just going to do our little thing right here, and this is the work of the Lord. And then we're so short-sighted to, to see the big picture. 
that somehow we take these words, the, the words that are between these bindings right here, and we somehow twist them to think that, you know, this part's for me, and this part's for you, and that it's not all one story, and that, that, that God doesn't have a plan for how these 66 books ended up here, and what God is trying to do in this world. Take a step back and realize what the Lord is doing. It's not about starting some new religion. It's not about starting some new denomination of Christianity. It's about finding the truth in Scripture and how is the story supposed to end. It's supposed to end with all of creation returning back to be in covenant with the Lord. Israel, the Gentiles, all people, all families being blessed by the testimony of God and the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. That's the point of all of this, for Israel and Gentiles to unite together to bring about the restoration of the whole house of Israel, not just the native-born, because all of Israel was never just the native-born. When they went into the wilderness, there was all kinds of people in there, all kinds of people grafted into the tribes, and every tribe looked different or uh, whatever. There's a bunch of Egyptians there and Ethiopians there, and there's a whole bunch of people all, all mixed in right there. It's not about race. It's not about heritage. It's not about anything except for the heritage of being the creation of God and being a member of mankind, not the member of some specific race. That is what we have to learn. That's what the Scripture is trying to teach us, and we need to stop trying to divide the Scripture and divide the creation of God and divide the people into this part's for you and this race and this part's for us and this race. Stop it. That's not the Bible I read, and that's not the message that this ministry is teaching. This is the story. This is, this is the end of the whole reason for the Torah and the commandments and what Moses is pleading with the children of Israel to learn. Yet there are those that don't hear it. Those that don't see it. Those that don't, even though the word has gone out, they still reject it. But in the course of that word going out, there are those that are hearing it that are repenting from their sins, are turning back, and are being grafted into the tree, back into the creation from which we came. What a beautiful thing that is. And will you pray that we might see the greater fulfillment of all these prophecies, that in my lifetime or, or your lifetime or whoever might hear this years from now, that in your lifetime that we would see the restoration of the whole house of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this teaching. We thank you, Lord, for the words of Paul and, and the teaching and the letter to the Romans. Father, we thank you for the words of Moses. And Father, I pray that the words of Moses, the song of Moses, would penetrate us this year in a way that has never been felt or seen before. Cause your spirit to make the words come alive. Cause your spirit to prevail in our hearts and our minds and lead us into following truly what your plan for Israel and for all of mankind is. Surround us in your perfect will in everything that we do. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that, that, to, to teach and to share this word. And Father, may it be your word that goes out from this place, not the word of any man, not the agenda of any man, Father, but simply your truth and your word and your uh, intention for your words to fall upon ears that hear and hearts that understand. I pray that those people would be the ones that would hear this word. Father, I pray that we would continue to soften our hearts, set aside our own human spirits, Lord, and submit only to your spirit in all things that we do. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you for this time and this opportunity. 
And we thank you for this Sabbath of rest. We thank you for all of these things. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.